This is the Star Coach Show with Meg Rentschler, episode 317. You know, as coaches, you can't, you can only take the steps that you can take. And the idea of writing a book I knew would have overwhelmed her. So once I saw that she was so passionate about it and she was, she was game to do this work, that's when I said, okay, are you, are we ready to write a book now? You know, and that is a beautiful example of how often as coaches would talk about meeting our clients where they are right. and then sort of chunking things down, making them manageable. So I want everybody to kind of envision, maybe you've got something that you really want to share and, and maybe the vulnerability of that is what's holding you back or wondering, do I have the bazillion hours that it would take to put into this? But I could do an article. I could do an article and put it out there and see how people are responding. Um, I will tell you that I've been listening to this book as I walk every morning. I've been listening to it whenever I get the opportunity so much so that I was like, oh, I need to buy this book and write in it. Welcome to Star Coaches, the show for professional coaches that brings you coaching strategies, tools, and resources. Whatever your focus or niche, take a front seat weekly as industry leaders, decision makers, and innovators share their wisdom and expertise on the ins and outs of successful coaching. Now join your host, Meg Rinchler, as she connects you with your star coaching potential. Hello and welcome to the show. It is fabulous to have you here. Happy December. This is Meg Rentschler, your host. And in today's show, we are going to dive into such an important topic. We're having a conversation around the business of race and how creating anti-racist work environments is actually good economically, it's good emotionally, it's good holistically, and I'm joined by the co-authors of The Business of Race, Margaret Greenberg and Gina Greenlee. We're going to share more about what we're going to talk about and how coaches are in a unique position to really help usher in this conversation uh, through the workplace and and how the topic of race is sometimes avoided rather than embraced. So we'll talk about that in just a second. Before we go there, I just want to let you know that this year has been a wonderful year in all the shows that we've been able to bring forward, the incredible guests that have joined the show. And I'm going to be taking a two-week break not after this episode, but after next week's new episode, to just take a breather for the holidays, allow you to catch up on any old episodes that maybe you had wanted to get to that you just didn't have a chance to this year, and and allow you to dive into the richness of the chest of shows available. And I also want to invite you to consider gifting yourself with community this holiday season. The Star Coach member community is an opportunity to really grow and learn in a community of heart-centered, like-minded people. We give you the tools and the resources needed to really up your game as a coach, including December's Star Coach Power Hour guest, Teresa Poole, who is going to share how we can maximize our discovery calls to increase our conversion rate. What would it mean to you to have even one more prospect say, yes, you're the coach that I want to work with? Those are the kinds of things that we do in the Star Coach member community. And yet the richness of the community is being able to be there for one another and break the isolation cycle that often happens for coaches. If I could tell you one thing that I have done to up my game as a coach, it's connecting with other coaches and investing in myself. So I encourage you to consider joining us and being available for that Star Power Hour with Teresa Poole. Get your conversion rate going. You can go to starcoachshow.com and look for the Explore Membership button on that top front page. And we look forward to having you consider joining us. Now let's talk about today's very important episode. 
As I mentioned, I am joined by the co-authors of The Business of Race, Margaret Greenberg and Gina Greenlee. Margaret is the president of the Greenberg Group, which is a consulting firm dedicated to coaching executives and their team to lead large-scale organizational change. Margaret is a globally recognized thought leader, keynote speaker, and positive psychology pioneer. She is so dynamic, and when you put her with Gina, the chemistry in this interview is just off the charts. Gina Greenlee is an organizational development, project management, communications training, and education professional. She has experience in really creating experiential learning models and stages of readiness for behavioral change. And I've got to say that these two women, one self-identified as a white American, one self-identified as a black American, and we're going to talk about the importance of being self-identified, bring forward how they came together to create this very important book, The Business of Race, and how we as coaches are in a unique position to be able to have that conversation, to be able to support and challenge organizations to step into a space of having an anti-racist workplace. The resources that are offered in this interview are off the charts. Cannot wait to introduce you to these dynamic women. Let's go to my interview with Margaret and Gina. Gina and Margaret, welcome to the Star Coach Show. I am beyond delighted to have the two of you here and really honored that you are taking the time out of your busy schedules to talk about this really important topic that coaches, leaders, HR professionals, we need to be having this conversation and I'm humbled that you're having the conversation with me. So welcome to the Star Coach Show. Thank you, Meg, for, for having us. Absolutely. Thank you, Meg. I'm Margaret. And yeah. I'm I, and, and yeah. I'm Gina. And let's just launch right into it. You know, when we write in the business of race that uh, we name the racial and ethnic identities of, of the people that we interviewed and the research that we cite, actually, they self-identify racially and ethnically. Why do we do that? Because our worldview is a function of our lived experience. So with that as context, um, since you can't see us, I identify as Black American. And Margaret? I identify as White American. Okay. So we have these two beautiful women representing professional women of the, of, happens to both live in the United States. But how in the world did the two of you come together to do this project of writing the business of race, how to create and sustain an anti-racist workplace and all capitals, let's pay attention to this and why it's actually good for business. Ding, dang it. That's not part of the title, ding, dang it, but it is. And let's talk about that. Well, this stems from, from a sweet, delightful, nurturing, growth-inspiring friendship of more than two decades. And more than anything, um, as, as proud as we are of this book and, and the, the hopes that we have for um, advancing an anti-racist uh, society, um, it really began with, with a deep friendship. And, and that prompted a phone call on May 26, 2020, from my dear friend, Margaret Greenberg, of more than two decades. May 26, 2020 is the day after the murder of George Floyd. Margaret was horrified, she was shaken, and she had the presence of mind to empath. She, she could empathize that this is what she was feeling. Perhaps her friend, who is identifies as Black American, might be even more rattled. And so she picked up the phone to ask me how I was doing. Yeah, almost like in true coach fashion, although I wasn't being a coach, all I did was ask Gina, you know, what's going on in this world and, and, and how are you doing? And just left 
the space like we do in coaching, mm-hmm. right? You just leave the space, right? And I was just leaving that space for my friend because I couldn't imagine how she must be feeling. And in the in the decades of our friendship, we had never, I mean, I could probably count on less than, you know, 10 fingers, the number of times we talked about our different, uh, our different um, uh, identities, racial and ethnic identities. And so I say that because when Margaret left the space open, right, as coaches, as good coaches do, great coaches do, I just started telling her what, you know, I started recounting stories of racial profiling, you know, police being accused of shoplifting, you know, having a a white friend of mine say, oh, I could return an item, just walk into my house, open the door, I'll leave the door unlocked. And I said, "Um, okay, I'll, I'll do that if you first call all your neighbors, tell them what I look like. And then when I help stroll into your unlocked house, make sure they don't call the police because when I come out, I'll be met with a hail of bullets. And this was a white woman who said, oh my God, Gina, it never occurred to me. That was the story I told Margaret. And Margaret, what was your reaction? I, well, first of all, I, I, I was shocked, right? I, that wasn't my world, right? I could walk in anywhere, right? And, and not even think about the color of my skin. And I said to her, Gina's a, a, a writer. She, at that time, she had written like 17 books. She was a, a journalist, a column featured a columnist for the Hartford Current. And so I said to her, I go, Gina, maybe you ought to write about this. And she said, no, I'm done writing about this. I have written about it. And I have been dismissed as the angry black woman. And she said, Margaret, and if you write about it, you will be dismissed as the privileged white woman. And so that's when I said, well, what if we wrote something together? Because yeah. I want to write too. I, I said, and she had written a book. Well, first of all, I, I've been wanting to write a book with Margaret for 10 years. Of course, if you had given me a crystal ball and said we'd be writing about race, I'd still be on the floor laughing. Like, why? <laughs> why would we do that? Right. Because I had always been dismissed. I mean, I, I had a platform and the Hartford Current loved it when I wrote about race. And then all the, their white readers were talking about, you always playing a race card and like, oh, racism is over. And I'm like, you know what? <laughs> nah. So I said to Margaret, OK, well, the only way I said, I've been wanting to write a book with you for a decade since she wrote her first fabulous book, Profit from the Positive. I said, I didn't think it was going to be this one. <laughs> but the only way I'm going to write about race again is if I write about it with a white woman, with a white person, so that I, frankly, because I do have to think about being accused of the angry black woman. Margaret, you and Margaret, uh, Meg, can get you can get angry all day long. Right, okay? I get it, I get it, yeah. So, but, and you know, and not have to worry about being killed. That's not my world. I so know. I said, if I write about it, it needs to, if I want it read this time and not dismissed, then it needs to come from a white w- woman who's got some, not only the lived experience of whiteness, but some serious business credentials. Right. She just happens to be a woman I love as a friend. <laughs> Ended up being this beautiful thing. And, and well, from that, Margaret, what would you say? Yeah. Well, the other thing I'd say is, of course, uh, we wouldn't want any of your listeners to think that, you know, we dreamed up this idea to write this book, um, that really we started with just one article, right? Books don't get written overnight, of course. And and so we just started to write one article and we used the LinkedIn platform because we're business women and that's where we post things. And the response to that first article, which was discussing the undiscussables, why the workplace is the perfect place to um, address race and racism. And that got such a positive response. Like people were writing saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe we're finally able to talk about this in the workplace, that it led to another article and another article and it turned into a six part series. And then that's when Gina said, we ought to write. Yeah, I said, yeah, that's when I said time to write a book because I knew she couldn't hear it. Because she's a busy right. woman. So if we I just said, let's write a book. Right. You know, as coaches, you can't, you can only take the steps that you can take. And the idea of writing a book, I knew would have overwhelmed her. So once I saw that she was so passionate about it and she was, she was game to do this work, that's when I said, okay, are you, are we ready to write a book now? <laughs> you know, and that is a beautiful example of how often as coaches would talk about 
meeting our clients where they are, right. and then sort of chunking things down, making them manageable. So I want everybody to kind of envision, maybe you've got something that you really want to share, and, and maybe the vulnerability of that is what's holding you back or wondering do I have the bazillion hours that it would take to put into this? But I could do an article. I could do an article and put it out there and see how people are responding. Um, I will tell you that I've been listening to this book as I walk every morning. I've been listening to it whenever I get the opportunity so much so that I was like, oh, I need to buy this book and write in it. So I was sharing with Gina and Margaret that there are so many things that resonate with me as I listen to this. And, and one of the things that comes through for me is the power of history that you've put into the book. I am a history junkie. I love the pain of history in many ways. So as I listen to the patterns that have been established in our country, the way that we have treated our fellow human beings with different skin color and different ethnicity than us, it hurts my heart. And, and I know that one of the arguments of the day, which I really didn't tell Marge, you know, I was going to bring up, but this came up to me as I was crying through this the other day, is, you know, that supposedly now we're not allowed to teach our children things that make them feel bad. And, and I get that it makes us feel bad. I, I, I would hope that our history makes us feel bad because it's not a happy history all the time. So I guess I am not creating a very well-formed question for you ladies here, but my thought in this is, so let's say the workplace is the best place to address because we're there and we've got work to do. Um, how would you respond to maybe that concept of, well, but we don't want our workers to feel bad. How do we address the, the reality of our, our times and what we want to move forward under that umbrella of, yeah, but we're all here for happy, happy, joy, joy. And I know that's a real convoluted, confusing question, but I would love to just, how did that hit you? Yes. I, so I'm going to, I'm going to start first, Meg. This is Gina. Um, first of all, history, um, uh, a couple of things. If people feel something when they read and let's call it what it is if when white people let's we name without shaming or blaming right right um the reason why white people one of the things is white people don't think of themselves as white they white people um think of themselves as the norm that i mean this is documented you know research okay they're they're at the center of their default and everybody else is racialized so that's one of the many reasons white people, some white people struggle with the term white privilege because they're, we're looking at it from a systems point of view, a systemic point of view, not an individual point of view. That doesn't mean that you haven't had issues and problems and challenges like every human being. However, what white privilege means is a recognition that there that the institutions in this society were designed for you. So to Margaret's point, she can walk anywhere she wants and not have to worry about being killed the way Amand Aubrey is. I see a house that's being built over here. I would I wouldn't do that. Amand Aubrey is a young man. I'm 61 years old and I'm not saying he didn't have a right to walk there. I have an awareness that if I walk there, I'm putting my, my life at risk. So if it, Margaret calling me because she's horrified by the, the images of the murder of George Floyd, she feels something because she has empathy. So that's really the question. I, I'm going to suggest that the question is, the, the, the framing of the question suggests that becoming aware of the full scope of American history, whether you're talking about anti-Blackness, um, the Chinese Exclusion Act, the, so repatriation of um, Mexican-Americans to Mexico when they were born. <laughs> okay, In America, they were as American right. as you and I. So yeah. if learning about all of that makes you feel something, I say, hurrah, you are a human being. You have empathy and we write about empathy and empathy is important for this work. The framing of that question, feel bad, and I'm not 
I'm not denigrating you, but I'm saying I've that's I've heard that argument. Feel bad if people that is suggesting that those feelings are being imposed on you. And so the asset view that we take in this book, we take an asset view, what you have to gain, not what you have to lose, is that if you feel something, oh, be, be grateful. You're a human being. And in order, you know, as coaches, right, people have to, you know, there's, there's this saying, and I don't, I'm not saying you say this as coaches, but there's a saying, people don't remember what you said, what you did. They remember how it made yeah. you feel. That is why the George Floyd video going viral has had a global impact because it made people feel something. So, so again, I want to take the asset view that when you feel that that's empathy, that's not guilt. Okay. That's, that's an interpretation. So I'm just going to stop there and take a breath. And I know Margaret wants to Mm. say something because she's my sister from another Mm. mister. And I know that look. <laughs> oh, thank you, Gina. I love the distinction um, that you just made between feeling bad and having empathy and compassion. I mean, that, that, I mean, yeah. it, I mean that, that's that's brilliant. And and empathy. Yes, we write about it in the business of race as one of the five core muscles that we must all learn, right, and grow. Uh, and yet, empathy is also one of the International Coaching Federations, the ICF, one of their core competencies, uh, right? Being able to demonstrate empathy. And so that's one of the reasons why, why we think, you know, coaches are uniquely positioned to help the organizations that they work in or work for uh, to partner with DEI professionals, to partner with their, their business leaders. Um, to help facilitate discussions, to help facilitate uh, this change, and empathy is 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 really critical. And and Meg, you also mentioned you know uh, history. History, uh, the business of race is not a history book. We have uh, you know two chapters right. uh, it's dedicated. Just so yeah, rich. Yeah, we have to do something to give a shared context, a shared mm-hmm. lexicon before we just dove right into right. what are some of the systemic changes that we need to need to um, change in, in organizations. And so uh, Gina, I have to give credit to, I mean, Gina did the lion's share of the research. I mean, that is another one of her strengths that she is a great researcher. And you try to distill down 400 years oh. of history into yeah. like two chapters. I mean, that was a Herilkian, uh, it, it just a huge effort. So um, and so well written, so well written. So so let's say thank you for that. That's just that it's just this mindset that keeps us from maybe engaging with reality is something that that I think that as you said, coaches and OD professionals are in this unique position to engage in this conversation and. Um, and to shift the way that we engage in the workplace. So let me throw it to the two of you. How do you see coaches as being uniquely positioned and how could we step into that space? Yeah, I can, I can start, Margaret. Yeah. I can um, start with that. Well, first of all, coaches, we are in the business of helping people uncover their best selves. That's, that's what we do. We help clients articulate their strengths. We help clients, um, you know, be able to articulate their aspirations, their hopes, their dreams. And then, you know, we help them actually leverage those strengths and turn those aspirations and dreams and hopes into actions, right? We're always about deepening your learning, forwarding your action, right? That's the, our, our mantra as coaches. So first and foremost, we're in that profession. And keep in mind, Gina, nor I, are DEI professionals. Um, That is not where we've come from. We interviewed a number of DEI professionals as part of our our research and their voices are are heard in the book. But that's not our, we come from that OD space, that coaching space. Um, So that's first and foremost. Second, coaches were were trained in specific skills and competencies. We've already talked about empathy, right? Uh, But we're trained in certain competencies that can really advance discussions about race and racism in the workplace. So first, um, coaches, we are naturally curious. I would say 
I have yet to meet a coach at any kind of gathering that isn't curious to learn more about people, right? Um, and because we're so curious, we also know how to ask really powerful questions. And we're trained to ask powerful questions, right? When we go through training and, and coursework. Um, so we know how to ask powerful questions, the questions that like everybody's thinking, but nobody wants to ask, uh, right? So that's that can really facilitate wonderful discussions around race and racism, um, being able to do that. We've already talked about empathy. And I guess the other piece that um, strikes me, that makes me think uh, we're uniquely uniquely qualified is that we're also hyper aware of group process. So yes, we may be coaching individuals and we bring all the, the skill set to coaching of individuals, but when we're working with teams and organizations, we're very conscious of group process and can read the room and then you know dip in where we need to dip in, step back when we know we need to just step back and listen. Uh, so all of those, those skills, uh, competencies, I think just position us really well. Love that. So within that, we think about how it's actually good for business. And then that is how creating and sustaining an anti-racist workplace is actually good for business. I would love to, you know, we've got leadership coaches, executive coaches, different leaders listening to the show. And how would you, Gina, let me throw it to you. You know, when you think about our power of creating and sustaining anti-racism in the workplace, how would you describe how that is actually good for business? I mean, lots of ideas there, but how would you put that out there? Well, we we make a, a business case in the book and each organization needs to make its own case. There's a lot of discussion around don't make a don't make a business case out of it. It's a moral case. It's an ethical case. And our our position is it's not either or. It's both and and everything in between. We don't deal in binary, okay, concepts. We actually have a whole section of around spectrum thinking. All the possibilities between two extremes. Unfortunately, so many of us, you know, in in the, in the American culture right now, because we are, you know, binge watching news around the clock, which is deeply polarized. There's no nuanced discussion. There's no complexity. So we're, we're I think we're, we're kind of being trained for that, but we, so, you know, each organization needs to make its case and we position, we make our case, which is not the case for every organization, but we make our case to model, right? Cause that's something else that coaches do to model oh, well, what might the case be for my organization? My organization might not be into this, but oh, this is how they made that argument. I never considered that. So very briefly, we have, you know, six reasons why we believe the workplace is the perfect place. But one of, but the other thing I want to share is um, that there, there's decades of research that we've cited from um, major um, consulting group giants, you know, Citicorp, McKinsey, um, Boston Consulting Group, that shows that not just diversity in general, although the research shows that, but racial diversity in particular, organizations that are racially diverse outperform organizations that are not racially diverse four key measures that is innovation, profit, productivity, attracting and retaining talent. So if you are a for-profit business, you have a bottom line, particularly if you're publicly traded and you're beholden to Wall Street, don't you want to be profitable? Don't you want to have productivity? <laughs> don't you want to retain the business? I mean, to me, you know, that's like a no-brainer, right? So um, the, the business, uh, you know, one of the quote, what we open up each chapter of the book with a quote, one is from Vijay Swaran, who is identifies as Malaysian Indian. He's an economist by training. And he says, you know, the ethical, the ethical argument is weight enough, but the, the statistical, the research is like, makes this a no brainer. So, you know, we wanted to use the language of business. A, that's because what we know, but to the point of, not everybody's going to be in the same place. We know that because we know the practice of organizational development is, is operating at three different spheres, not linearly. So you're looking at the individual level, which intersects with the team level, which intersects 
um, with the organizational level. So you might have the CEO who says, yeah, we're doing this. But then we also know you're going to have five teams over here who are like, oh, no, we're not doing this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, we're not. So, yeah. right. So the, all of this is happening. And so for some people, they're going to need, they're going to need that. They're going to need the language of capitalism because for whatever you think about capitalism, and that's like a whole other conversation, um, that is the system under which businesses operate, even, you know, even the not-for-profit organizations, right? So they still have to fundraise in that, in this environment. So we're speaking the language that people can understand. Historically, you know, you talked about, you know, us creating um, shared context, and that's part of how you do that. You create a shared context. If you want to move a coaching client as individuals or a team that you're working with or whatever, you don't have to necessarily agree on lexicon, but you have to identify that you're all talking about the same thing. thing. All right. Which is what happens when people just want to use the letter CRT as a weapon when CRT is, is a legal course taught at the graduate level and nobody on this planet, no teacher on this planet is teaching that to kindergartners, but the narrative is really, really very important. So to answer, so, so yeah, so that's our business case and, you know, I'm going to leave it there. Well, and so with that, and the reason why I touched on it is that I, I think that it, it opens up the eyes of or ears of some people who need to kind of come from that direction. And it comes to readiness. So you talk about readiness in the book and you and and readiness organizationally, readiness individually. Margaret, what do you want to expound upon regarding the importance of readiness? Well, thank you, uh, Meg. It's interesting, coaches are really familiar with this notion of readiness, right? It, it, we always say it's all about readiness. And that's why we have the client, you know, that's the agenda, right? Uh, and it's all about uh, readiness. But we must understand, you know, for this work around creating and sustaining a, a racially diverse and equitable uh, workplace, people are going to be at different levels of readiness. Organizations are going to be at different points along their journey. So we share in the business of race two models that illustrate how people adapt to change, any change, race work included. And so these are models that transcend the topic, right? One of them, which many of your listeners might be familiar with, is uh, Prochaska's five-step change model, right? Which is pre-contemplation, right? We don't know what we don't know. Uh, contemplation, okay, now we're starting to think about it, and then preparation, that's where we come in and can help people, uh, and then action and maintenance. So that's one model that we explain and show how it can be used for this work. And then the other uh, that coaches may be familiar with, too, is the conscious competence learning model, where we start from unconscious incompetence, again, we don't know what we don't know, to unconscious, or excuse me, conscious incompetence, to then conscious competence to eventually unconsciously competent. We don't even have to think about it anymore. It's like riding a a bicycle. So we offer those two tools as a way to get people to think about where am I in my journey? Uh, Where where am I? And journey was one of the common themes that ran uh, through every one of the interviews. We did more than two dozen uh, interviews with business leaders and journey was brought up again and again and again that we're all doing uh, on our own journey, right? Uh, and then we also offer two tools to help actually assess readiness. How do you assess it? So we offer one tool uh, that can be used at the individual level. It's called the ASI, and that stands for the Anti-Racist Style Indicator. Uh, it is free. It can be found online at ASI, I believe, .org. And it's by Dr. Um, Deborah Plummer. And then the other assessment tool that is also free by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, we're all about free tools, right, coaches? Uh, OS is called the OSA, which is the organizational self-assessment. Uh, so those are tool, two tools that could help coaches. And I would, we would recommend that they first try it themselves to see, okay, how do, how do I personally assess myself? And then consider offering it to others that might be interested. Again, nothing should be mandatory. 
It should be people that want to do this, things that might come up in your coaching where you say, oh, you know, I have a tool that could help you figure out uh, where you are. Um, So again, all client driven, but um, as coaches, we need tools in our toolkit to help us. When you have a plethora of tools that you offer uh, in your book that, you know, I, I guess I would throw both of you. How do you how do you see coaches maybe applying the different resources and tools that that you offer in the work that they do? Well, Margaret, I'm gonna. Why don't you? Yeah. Why don't you start? Okay. You, have, yeah. you have some. I know you can't name names, obviously, but right. you have some concrete examples of that. So. Yeah. Um, so I'll give one, uh, and I will talk about a couple tools too, but um, one right. story that comes to mind is I had given a gentleman a copy of our book uh, right when it first came out a year ago, uh, August. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty thick book. I probably should have given it to him an audio book because he's in his car a lot. Uh, but I gave it to him. And again, um, just we started the coaching and it's something that I do. I give him my other book and, you know, if they want to read it, great. And he had never brought it up. He never mentioned it. I'd asked him a couple of times. So, you know, did you do any reading? Uh, no, I've been really busy. I haven't had a chance. Okay. You know, wasn't a coaching assignment or anything uh, until there was a quote incident, not in his company, but in one of his, um, what we call, it would be considered a, uh, like a vendor uh, kind okay. of arrangement, right? Where mm-hmm. they do business with. And um, it went all over social media. It was a very uh, racist remarks that were made. And um, all of a sudden now it came up in our coaching session. And he had increased. (laughs) Exactly. And thank goodness he has a great, um, you know, PR person that could help him craft, you know, his message. Um, But bottom line, you know, as I coached him, he came to the realize that realization that he had to sever um, his relationship with this uh, company uh, because it did not align with his own personal values and his company's values. And, and he said, prior to coaching, he said, I think I would have hemmed and hawed and wonder, Oh my God, what should I do? And, I, and he said, but because you've helped me clarify my values, my company values, you know, over, over several mm-hmm. month period, he said, it was really clear to me, that this was just not acceptable. And I, I needed to make a, a public statement and sever our relationship and then read the book. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is about readiness. And so that's one example of how, how it may come up in coaching. Another is one of the tools that we um, write about, Gina came across, across it in her research, is the NPR's race card project. And when we use that term, playing the race card, that's a, uh, an idiom that alleges someone has used race to gain unfair advantage, right? Oh, they're playing the race card. But NPR has kind of turned that definition on its head. And what we call uh, our asset lens, they look at, okay, let's look at the race card project. How would you define race in six words? So imagine you're having a conversation with your your client and race comes up and um, you ask, well, how would you define race in six words? And if you want them to go even deeper, you send them out to the NPR site where there's over 500,000 personal narratives on what race means to people in just six words. So for me, when I did this uh, work, again, we're all on our own journey. We're still learning. Uh, Mine was six words was color aware rather than color blind. And my six words were, I'm I'm 61 now, but at the time my six words were at 60 exploring my blackness anew. What, and I'm going to unpack that just a little bit on the race card project. um, First of all, you can do it anonymously. So you don't have to, you know, uh, worry about uh, your identity uh, being shared unless you want to share it. And you can upload pictures and tell, and you can expand on the six 
Um, they call it race card because it's six words enough to fit on a postcard. That's it. That's all you get. But very powerful, right? That's what poetry is oh, all about. Super powerful. Still, yeah. right. So, but you can elaborate. And so I'll briefly elaborate again. This is Gina. I identify as Black American. I was born to, to Black Southerners um, who were born in 1926 and 1940. My parent, Both my parents have passed. They were part of the great migration of Blacks to, to the northern part of the United States from the West Coast, Midwest, the East Coast. And um, for those who want to read more about that, you can read our book. And there's plenty of information about there about the great migration of 6 million Blacks. I was born. Um, so I was born in New York, where my parents who had grown up under Jim Crow, I was born in New York. And that's why they went to New York, because they wanted to have a life that wasn't totally defined by, by the color of their skin. And they wanted um, more for me. So, and, you know, again, the United States is heavily segregated and that's not an accident. That was actually, and again, that's more history. People can read all about it in our book and in other places. But what happens is my parents, and so because we're segregated, we wound up, you know, we lived in a, in a multicultural project, you know, public housing. Again, where a lot of people of color, that's where you could live because there were districts that were redlined and districts, and we we could not. I mean, again, I was born in 1960, so you're talking, this is before the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, before the Voting Rights Act of 1965. This is living history. Right. So my parents, my father got an opportunity to basically put me in a neighborhood that had middle-class values. And it just so happened that that neighborhood was predominantly white. We were the third black family to integrate that neighborhood. So why do I bring this up in the context of the race card is because when I say my race, my six words at 60, discovering my blackness anew, I was confused. <laughs> I'm a black kid raised by Jim Crow folks who were so racially traumatized and who died in early death because of that. And they want something better for me. And all they know how to do is put me in a white neighborhood because they knew I was not going to get what they wanted me to get staying in these, in the neighborhoods that were actively being undermined by the United States government. Okay. It's all coming out. I mean, it was, it was, wasn't news then, but it's, it's all, becoming aware to a lot of white people. So I'm growing up in this white neighborhood. I The black kids are kicking my butt every day, calling me an Oreo. I, you think you're white because you live in the rich, quote, Jew buildings, end quote, their words. My, my parents are like, whatever, <laughs> we're going to work. We've given you this opportunity. I'm not really fitting in with the white kids. And there's all this undercurrent of race. Well, how come your hair looks like this? And how come your nose is so broad? You know, so I'm growing up just confused. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> so when George Floyd, you know, and yet mm -hmm. I'm being racially profiled, but I'm not white. And my parents are going, well, you know, be proud that you're black. And now we're going to move you to this all white neighborhood. I'm like, what? What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this does not compute. So, uh, you know, so my point, so the, here's the thing. When you talk about readiness and you talk about coaches and you, and you look at the tools that we're talking about, one of the things I will say as a Black woman from my, my lived experience is that unless a white person grew up in a social justice family, right, people who were active, activists, whatever, a lot of white people are becoming aware of really what's going because a lot of people bought into, oh, we've elected a black president. You know, we're post-racial, you know, even under a black president. It, actually, the problems exacerbated. And that is when the hate crimes increased because people lost their minds. Oh, my God, this can never happen again. OK, so one of the things is a challenge to you and to your listeners. OK, however you racially identify, but especially if you racially, and you're a coach, but if especially if you racially identify as white and you have white clients, I would encourage them to take the race card project. I would encourage them to do their six words ASI because historically white people do not think of themselves as white. When Margaret and I first did this work and we had to self-identify, I was all about being a black woman. And Margaret was like, I'm a mother, I'm a daughter, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a skier, I'm a gardener. There was nothing about white in there. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Margaret had to take that journey. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
if people don't think, if white people who have the power to make a difference, if we do not bring white people who have power into this conversation, nothing's going to change. And that's bad for everybody, not just for people of color. Let me tell you one more thing and I'll shut up. And that is because in the work of Black female economist Heather McGee and the work in The Sum of Us, it's not a zero-sum game. And she, and she can prove it with the simple metaphor. Of course, she takes 400 pages to do all of the economics piece, which is really important when you're talking to business people in organization or organizational people, even if it's a not-for-profit. But um, in the 1950s, uh, early 60s, okay, in the, oh, in the early 60s, when the civil rights le legislation came out, okay, people had to, at 1964 in particular, okay, and now it was like, you know, segregation, this is outlaw, we got to integrate the schools, we got to integrate everything, and the South is the water fountains, okay, and then I was growing up in New York today, I was born in 1960, we have to integrate the pools, okay, the pools were segregated. Swimming, but I remember I would go to camp, but then I would also go to the public pool in the city. Well, all over this country, when that happened, so there were black kids swimming together, white kids swimming together, age all kinds. We were all splashing and cooling off in the summer. And then the law said, oh, you got to integrate the pool. And you know what the white folks did who didn't like that? They closed the pools, they filled them with, they backed up trucks, cement trucks, filled them with concrete. And guess what? Not only did little black children and Spanish children and Asian children not go swimming, white children go swimming no either. Swim no swimming for you unless you are a part of an economic class where your parents can afford a private pool. And since whites are the predominant culture in this country, most, most of them cannot afford private pools. So how does pouring concrete in a pool, because you don't want black people to swim, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. This is not a zero sum game. White people lose too. And white, and if you don't think of yourself as white, you will never do the work to be ready to look at that. That's where you begin. You get your clients to I to think of themselves as a race. That's where you, that's where I'm suggesting you start as a black woman. Yeah, and Gina. So that starts starts right with with your looking at your clients. I will add to that and say, look at the racial diversity of the people you're coaching, of the people in your professional groups, of your social circles. Um, I remember, and I, I didn't share this story with Gina. I remember about ten years ago, I was coaching at a large financial services company. And once a quarter, they give me a handful of leaders to coach. It was like a rotational program. And the first few cycles, I was coaching only white male executives. And the first time it happened, I was like, oh, okay. You know, I didn't think much about it. And then it happened again. Again, all white male. So I would have these check-in meetings with the head of, of talent. and I. And at the time, I wasn't paying attention to racial diversity. I was only paying attention to gender diversity, which is where a lot of organizations, you know, begin their, their work. And so I, I just simply asked, you know, what are your plans to develop more female leaders? And sure enough, by raising that question, I raised her awareness. And within, it was probably wasn't the next quarter, but within the six months, I was coaching a couple of female leaders. Now, the same is true today of people of color. Mm -hmm. If you're not coaching any people of color, ask yourself why. Mm -hmm. Or ask the company or the person that brokers your coaching assignment, you know, where are all the people of color? Where are they? Uh, we tell a story in the business of race about a leadership team of, um, it wasn't a leadership team, it was uh, 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 up and coming leaders, future leaders of this company that were um, went on a quote field trip down to uh, Montgomery, Alabama to learn more about our history, right? Uh, civil rights era. And um, it was a group of young people. There was one uh, multiracial woman 
who was very, very light skinned. You, you wouldn't even know that she was multi You would think she was quote white if you, mm-hmm. you know, if you didn't ask. And the woman who was leading the tour said to them as they were getting on the bus, said, um, "Don't you have any people of color uh, in leadership positions uh, at your company?" And um, one of the leaders said, "Oh yeah, we 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 have uh, people of color, but you know they're back at the the home office." And she said. Yeah, she said, but you told me that this was your group of future leaders that you're grooming that are part of this leadership development program. Where are the people of color? And again, we tell that story in the business of race because it was somebody that we had interviewed and it was like this aha moment that, oh, yes, we, we do have uh, people of color in this organization, but they're back at the home office. Yeah, right. and, and they're they were, not they being were, groomed. Right. They were not in leadership positions. Just to say, right. she said, right. where are the people of color? He's the, the guy said, you know, the executive who was sponsoring these future leaders said, oh, they're they're back at the home office because they're not, not future leaders, not in this group. And then the docent at the Civil Rights Museum said, well, what what do you all do? You know, they said, we, we, we produce DEI material. And she's like, what? And then she literally just shut them down. I mean, I don't know. I, you know, that's not really our approach, but she just right, said, right. Um, you all have to be quiet and reflect on this, yeah. this dissonance. Yeah. Okay. This is what, this is your product. And yet everybody I'm looking at here, who's a future leader does not reflect what you are marketing. So she made them be quiet and reflect while they walk to, to the bus. But again, just, you know, so, you know, Again, we take an asset view. You don't have to shame people, but awareness is everything. You know that as coaches, and that's that's our we evoke awareness. And and I I have no doubt that this interview is evoking awareness for our listeners, getting them to think differently. I, you know, my best friend is of Mexican American heritage. And um, she she said, well, she was born and raised in Mexico City. And um, she said, do you realize that that when my husband and I go out to eat, we're treated very differently than when the four of us go out to eat? She is, you know, a... Um, well, she's a former beauty queen. She's a she's she's a, and a professional, and and uh, and her husband is you know, and it doesn't matter regardless of that. Like to Gina's, point, I just want to verify for you, right, Gina? I just because I don't see that way. I think seriously, how can people treat people differently? And I know, I mean, I know that sounds incredibly naive, but I just want everybody listening to 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 just reflect. I think we all need to be quiet and reflect. Um, and, and, you know, silence is a very powerful thing and reflection and what awareness is coming up inside of each one of us. And I guess as, as we, um, as we end our time together today, I would, I would like to go back to that question of, are there specific resources or tools that you think would be particularly helpful for the people listening now as they step into more awareness, as they step into, you know what? Yes, I am white. And what do I need to do to have different conversations and to to step into the responsibility that also becomes a part of that? So, well, well, one of the things I'd like to share in addition to all the tools that we've already mentioned, um, just to, to tap into your conversation about your friend, who is Mexican-American, you know, one of the things, one of the tools we talk about, one of the attributes of what we call a fear, red pill leaders, a fearless leaders, it's sort of, a, it's a take on the matrix, taking the red pill, is cultural curiosity. So when you, so perhaps the next time, I mean, I don't know what you talk about with your friend, but when you said, you know, when your friend shared with you, so she trusts you enough to share that with you, Oh, and I got all curious and asked her a bunch of questions and asked, yeah. So that, so, you know, yeah. So let's ask questions about, you know, what that's like. Mm -hmm. And that's another way, because again, uh, white people don't think of themselves as racialized. So when Margaret heard that I had to stop and think, I had to tell my friend, I can't go into your house. house. 
an unlocked house, I'm going to be killed. She had, she had no, so it was just me saying that it was like, Oh my God. And the same, and, and what she didn't do, but she didn't deny my experience because I've had conversations where I've attempted to share with people who actually, you know, when I, when I talk about this, they've, they've dismissed my experience, my lived experience. So you want to be curious. You want to hold, you want to do what coaches know how to do. You want to be curious. You want to hold the space. And um, I think one of the number one tool is to do your own self work, uh, to do your own work. Margaret, Margaret gave me kudos. She gave me props for doing the, the, the research. Um, we wrote this book together. Absolutely. Trust me on that. But we also play to our strengths. I'm an introvert. So I like to sit at the computer and just, you know, eat it all up. Margaret's the extrovert. She interviewed everybody. And then we wove together, we wove in their stories. And without any provocation from her when she interviewed, without exception, all of them said in order to do the institutional work, you first have to do your own work. So that's my parting comment to coaches you must do your own work. And people say, well, where do I start? Well, we've already given you several, we've already shared several tools. And the other thing I will say is be curious yourself. If you've always wondered, I mean, let's pick something. Why is black hair political? That's a real thing. If Michelle Obama had an Afro, Barack would not have been president. And if you don't understand why, Google it up and learn something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to build upon what Lisa, uh, what Gina just said about do your own uh, inner work. Uh, of course, you know, our book at the end of each chapter, um, there are reflection questions and powerful reflection questions and they're coaching questions. That's what they are. Mm-hmm. And so we, you, as a coach, you can reflect on them yourself. You could use it in a group setting. Uh, we don't recommend just reading the book front to cover and having a quote book club discussion. It's it's too dense. It's it's too much information. Read a chapter, reflect on the question. Read a chapter, reflect on the question. So that's it. The other one I want to recommend, especially for white people, uh, is this book that my dear friend uh, gave me a month or so ago that I I read, Anti Racist Ally uh, Ally by Sophie Williams, uh, is a very bite-sized, action-packed uh, a book. I'd recommend that. Um, for organizational coaches that do organizational work, uh, Cynthia O. Young uh, wrote all, Where All Are Welcome is another great resource. Now, these are books that have come out since we wrote our book. I mean, we, we have a whole section in the back where we recommend books, but um, these have just come out in the last uh, six months, 12 so, months. Yeah. And then the yeah. other one that I haven't read yet that just arrived in the mail uh, written by another black white co-authors is Tina Opai and Beth Livingston's Shared Sisterhood: How to Take Collective Action for Racial and Gender Equity at Work. So I haven't read this yet, but I'm dying to. And I'm reading the Some of Us again. I talked about Heather McGee; she's done a lot of podcasts. You can get her online. But the Some of Us: What Racism Costs Everyone, and How We Can Prosper Together. It's not a zero-sum game. It's not. Ladies, it truly was an honor to spend time with you to have this very important discussion that doesn't need to end here. I'm challenging, you know, everyone listening. How does the conversation continue? And until the next time I get to hopefully share with the two of you, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Meg. Thank thank you, Meg. Bye-bye. So there you have it. Lots of food for thought, lots of perspective. And I just want to really thank Margaret and Gina for joining us for this very important interview. If you want to know more about the work they do and their book, go to starcoachshow.com slash 317, starcoachshow.com slash 317. And the resources that they talked about, their book, uh, information with connecting with them will all be in the show notes for this episode. My conversation with Margaret and Gina continues for Star Coach members. And once again, if you're interested in exploring membership, go to starcoachshow.com and look for the Explore Membership button on the front page. 
For our final episode for 2022, I will be going solo next week to talk about the concept of creating space by letting go of some things to grow and to welcome new things into your life. It is a topic that has certainly been shown to me again and again this year and uh, was one I really wanted to have a conversation with you about as you think about moving into 2023. So that's what's available next week. Until next week, this is Meg Rentschler wishing you the very best for your coaching success. Have a fantastic week and we'll see you next.